Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in Westminster alongside Tom Keen and myself, Jonathan Farrell, I'm pleased to say it's Alan Wager from the UK in a changing Europe alongside Trevor Greetham. Alan, let's talk about it. Fast forward to 2020. We need to understand and try and get a little bit of clarity on what the Prime Minister wants. I don't think Boris Johnson knows what he wants. I think we managed to get to this stage. We had a Brexit election without really interrogating whether Boris Johnson would try and extend the transition period beyond 2020, whether he would try and go for a sort of bare bones free well, trade. Hang on a minute, deal. it's in a manifesto, isn't it? He's not no, going to extend manifesto, it. But he's got a huge amount of political capital now, and I think he, it's possible, and I think people in his party are saying that he could just sort of forget about that manifesto commitment when it gets to June. Uh, so going to say the, the EU are being intransigent and try and push that uh, transition period back a couple of years. And I think that would give him a lot of scope for manoeuvre. That's the option that's open to him. And it's whether or not he will, he will, he'll do that. Hey, Boris Johnson's a very flexible and adaptable politician. That's his uh, key to his strength. Well, which it. Boris will show up, that's the heart of the matter. I mean, it's a changing Europe. It's also a changing Boris, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think that Boris Johnson at heart is someone that probably would like to flip back towards a sort of one nation, centre ground. Uh, um, but it's not one starts. nation. I mean, he got crushed in Scotland. Northern Ireland is shockingly unique this morning. It is not one nation, is it? Yeah, I mean, if Boris Johnson had any strategy and spend the next couple of years really focusing on uniting the United Kingdom, because the, the only thing that could that could really, really derail Boris Johnson in the next five years is another independence referendum in Scotland and losing that. I mean, his position then would be untenable. That's the only thing that can actually, uh, you know, stop a, a five years uh, sort of, uh, you know, a strong Boris Johnson government now at this stage. Let's talk about the price action. Sterling bid, the pound stronger. Utilities really, really ripping higher here in the United Kingdom. We talked about the mid-caps, the banks as well in the UK too. The perception over the last three years, Trevor, and I wonder if you share it, is that there is this wall of capital waiting to come back into the UK once we resolve some of these issues. Have we resolved those issues to the extent that that wall of capital starts to come back into the UK? Well, uh, I think you've, you've seen the pound move up, but uh, it's moved up about 2% last night on the uh, exit poll. It's given up half of those gains already. It's not a very big move. So you can take from that that the markets were expecting a Johnson majority, if not this big. Um, I think there will be money coming back in. But um, I think the degree of that investment pickup is going to be limited. This until is we know critical. What's I mean, this is the heart of the matter. Trevor, you've been doing this for years, not only applying it to wealth management and asset allocation, but thinking about where money flows. How do you flow money to the labor areas of this nation that just voted for right. Boris Johnson? What's the mechanism to do that? Fiscal policy, because obviously, if, if we do go out with a sort of bare bones trade deal at the end of next year, if, if Johnson wants to get that behind him so he can move on to other things, he's going to have to oil the system. What is the? I learned about Blythe last spending. night. Okay, what is the fiscal policy that helps Blythe? You've got to have increased government spending. You've got to have uh, maybe targeted tax cuts. I think we've just learnt that all of the, the, the parties were splurging the cash in their manifestos and the gilt market yeah. didn't blink. So there's much more capacity for borrowing and spending than people thought. The Conservative Party has, has a new constituency that they didn't have for much it's of the last party, hundred years. I, I mean, we're talking about part, we're talking about <clears throat> constituencies, Tom, that for much well, of the last century, the Conservative Party were never in. 
and now they are. I'm going to ask the three of you, because I'm the foreigner here. Trillion dollar deficits. There's no one who's a deficit hawk in Washington. Is that what we're going to see here? And you may, they're not going to get the trillion, but is it boom? Well, the guilt market's not there, Trevor. Should it be? Well, I mean, in the end, the guilt market will respond more to inflation expectations and interest rate expectations. And because China is going through the structural slowdown in the background, you can't get a good inflation going. And at the moment, governments can load up on debt. If China comes firing back, commodity prices are rising, inflation goes up, then there's a reckoning. I think the question is whether or not um, Boris Johnson tries to square the circle he's got with his political coalition now by going down the economic route and trying to, you know, give some sort of tax reliefs and so on, whether he just tries to double down on the on the social populism that he's that he's won this the election cultural with. aspect. Yeah, maybe that's the way okay. of actually continuing. Let's come back. This. Alan, I want to come back and advance that point forward. Alan Wager with us, a researcher at the United Kingdom, UK and a changing Europe. Trevor Gretton with us, a Royal London asset manager. Rosalind Matheson with us, running all of our government coverage. Ben Ritchie of Aberdeen Standards stops by this morning uh, as well. Rosalind, the fiscal stimulus to me is key. Is it immediate, urgent? Is it Does it wait six weeks and there's a State of the Union address where he speaks to everyone and says, this is the budget? When does the budget get clarity? Expecting that obviously in the early part of next year. The first thing is to get Brexit through Parliament and then he needs to start talking some numbers for his own budget. But a lot of that you can expect to be put forward. It will say contingent on XYZ happening with Brexit, uh, with the EU. A lot of money has to come in to fund some of that, including on the health service. It wasn't just Labour saying we're going to use that money from Brussels to pay for some of the stuff, it was the government as well. Ross, the other thing we've got to think about is something that Nara touched on. What does the cabinet look like in the coming weeks? How does it change? And on top of that, the governor of the Bank of England leaves around the same time the UK leaves the EU, the end of January next year. Any idea how these kind of issues materialise in the coming days, coming weeks? It will be interesting to see how Cabinet may move or shift, but to be honest, he already had most of his diehard supporters in there. Remember when he removed Theresa May, for a bit of a word, uh, he essentially fired a bunch of Tories who he thought were against him, and they sat in Parliament as independents until yesterday, until the election. So he rewarded his inner circle. Those were very much hard Brexiteers from the far right of the party, but they're also some of his closest confidants. So you may not expect to see Cabinet move or shift that much, to be honest, this early in the game. Ben, overnight when we caught up with people in the FX market talking about what comes next in 2020. The rate cut call came up pretty quickly. The Bank of England's got 75 basis points to play with. Do they follow through on a cut anytime soon? Well, I don't think so. I think after, I think after yesterday, we've got a, a lot more stability. I think the, the Bank of England made it fairly clear at their latest update that they were sort of on, on a waiting brief. And if anything, I suspect we're probably going to be talking about rates going up rather than going down from here. The Bank of England, I guess, plays a part, but it comes down to that analysis of fiscal space. Rosalind and her team have written endless articles about this nation, this nation. Frame the fiscal space of the United Kingdom right now. Well, I think it all comes down to, to market confidence at the end of the day, Tom. And I Can think you get the paper issued and put it. I out think there. that's the key thing, and I think yeah. expectations have changed. And so the ability to run a deficit of one, two percent, something like that, which we which we've been shooting for in recent years, has probably widened. And I think the capacity of bond markets and debt markets to take that has expanded. And I think there's an appetite to see fiscal stimulus from governments and from investors to see that as a responsible action as opposed to an irresponsible one. And I think that's shifted, and I think that gives government more flexibility and room from here. The United States has proved that you can do that in a big way. Um, is that the privilege of the United States or can the UK follow suit? 
Well, I think the UK, one of the remarkable things, I think, throughout the whole Brexit saga has been that UK bond yields have remained so low. At no stage has there been the concern that inflation is going to rip, that confidence is going to be lost. Uh, and I think with you know UK 10-year gilts at 70, 80 basis points, I think the market's saying, yes, we do have appetite for UK paper. Sure, we might not have the extortionate privilege of the United States, uh, but we're still a well-regarded issuer. And so I would expect the, the government to look to take advantage of that, because this Conservative government is not going to want right. to put up taxes any more than it can do. And so I think borrowing is going to be the way forward for them. Rosalind, let me ask you a Therese Raphael question. I'm sure it'll get you in trouble. Is it an existential crisis for the United Kingdom that they've come this far, now they've got to go forward and they have to forget austerity? Is society here locked psychologically into austerity or can they actually boom with stimulus? Can they mentally get there? We did see Theresa May, for example, acknowledge that austerity, even though she was a big champion of austerity, was perhaps something that voters had felt had been taken too far. And you've seen that with just waiting times at hospitals. We saw it in a very powerful way during the campaign itself. You've seen questions around jobs, around crime, around education yeah. as a whole. And there's a feeling that, yes, perhaps they had to be a bit careful, particularly through this very long and protracted uncertain period when Brexit was being debated within the UK. But if we get to the point that Brexit is happening, perhaps that creates the certainty to have more of a discussion around spending on some of these key areas. And certainly the, the Labour voters who swung behind Boris Johnson last night will be expecting it. Before we move this conversation on to other issues, we're just getting some reporting around the Bank of England calling to officials that the new Bank of England governor will not be named this coming Friday. Uh, this coming Friday as in today. I've lost track of where we are. I've been up all night. Two UK government officials discussing the timing of that appointment. We won't find out today. Will it be a different Bank of England official with the size of this election? Well, you wonder if we're going to have an official that believes in Brexit in a way that perhaps Governor Carney, at least he's accused of, does not. Gerard Lyons, for instance, has been a name, has been a name circulating in the sure. city. He used to be the chief economist at Standard Chartered. So that's something to think about as well. I think front and centre for us, just taking a step back for a moment, mm -hmm. equities rolling over. The deal between China and the United States in doubt. We've heard from the US side, just briefly, the reporting suggesting that the president has signed off on a proposal with right. the Chinese, but at the moment, very little. Well, we welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Rosalind Matheson with us with Bloomberg News and working in international and government uh, leadership there. And Ben Ritchie with us as well with Aberdeen Standard Investment. Do you change anything? Are you going to write a 20-page note or read a 20-page note that's going to force you to change off this election? Well, I think it's the combination of trade and the election that removed two of the bigger issues that have hung over European equities for most of the last couple of years. And so I think if we are in an environment where we have a phase one deal, whatever that actually means, but we reduce hostilities and this perception of stability, and we take away Brexit as a potential sort of cliff edge issue, and we also start to see more governments across Europe move into fiscal expansion, that's creating an environment that's going to be positive, at least for investor sentiment towards European equities, which has been pretty dreadful for most of the last two years. And assuming that we actually saw things out between the United States and China. We're just hearing from the Global Times reporting that China will hold a press briefing today on trade talks. We don't know where things are at all. In fact, for many people, the last 24 hours was eerily similar to October 11th. We're told we've got an agreement. We don't have the details around it. Is it a little bit too premature to say the coast is clear for risk assets going into next year when we've got nothing on paper whatsoever? Well, I think we want to see the deal agreed. Again, I think the contents of the deal are less relevant than that there is a deal for market sentiment. I think that the, the where's and what's of how much agricultural purchases, what they extend to, what the protections are in around uh, technology and patents are not so important as the fact that an agreement is reached and that some degree of confidence 
confidence can be restored to corporate. Isn't an agreement just one slice, though, of a broader issue between China and the United States? Let's look at what's happening at the moment. Over the last two weeks alone, the one thing, one of the few things that is agreed upon in D.C. right now between Democrats and Republicans is a hard stance on China. You can see right now for the Chinese in the past week alone, decoupling of supply chains is something not only happening, they're actively encouraging in China and the United States. I don't think what's ever agreed on this phase one deal, whatever you want to call it, that we can sit here over the last 12 months and say we have a truce. Do we really have a truce just because we agree on buying a little bit more agricultural goods? I think that I think that I think that's absolutely right, and it's it's just one part of a of a longer frame, and it's likely to be an ongoing rivalry that stretches on for for decades from here. But I think in terms of the disruption to corporate confidence, to corporate investment that we've seen, I think this is an important step in trying to ameliorate that to some degree. Ben Ritchie of Aberdeen. We can catch up from Brussels, Maria Dimitris, Deputy Director of Bruegel. She's still going to be with us and alongside us here in London, Ben Ritchie of Aberdeen Standard Investment. Maria, just to come to you initially, ignore the sound all around me, the sirens here in London. Your thoughts on how Brussels will respond in the coming months with a UK British Prime Minister with a much bigger majority here in the UK. Well, it was an expected result, actually. This is um, uh, going to probably mean that the withdrawal agreement will pass. It will be uh, voted in the parliament, which means in itself that we can start uh, discussing the future trade deal. That is good news because it's going to provide the certainty that the markets need. So in that respect, uh, uh, this result is probably a solid result in terms of being able to start to think about the long-term relationship. Maria, it took Canada, what, seven years to come up with an agreement between the Canadians and the EU. There's a belief, and I think it's well placed, that the UK can do it quicker. The question, how much quicker and what kind of deal? Your thoughts on a timeline here, Maria? How doable is all of this? Well, that's a good point, actually. A typical trade deal of if you take any random couple of countries that is trying to strike a trade deal takes more than that. It takes a little bit more than two years. Uh, so in that respect, yes, wanting to do everything in one year is rather ambitious. On the other hand, we know exactly what to expect. The incentives are aligned. We both want good outcomes. So, I mean, it could, if you get your minds to it, I think we could do it in, in less than that. If it were to be blocked, it would be blocked for administrative issues. And, you know, it might take a little bit more than that. Uh, but in principle, I don't think why you, shouldn't be, right. why you need the seven or eight years to, to strike a day deal between the two. Yeah. Maria, one of the unspoken things is a changing of the guard within European trade leadership, really top to bottom, from Strasbourg back to uh, Brussels as well. Does it matter that there are new individuals doing these discussions? No, I don't think so. There's pure continuity here. I think it would be it would be important to just know what the next step is. So, you know, first things first, let's pass the withdrawal agreement with the majority that Prime Minister Johnson got yesterday. That probably will happen. As soon as this, uh, as soon as this happens, then uh, I think the continuity will be ensured, certainly from the EU side. The negotiations will still happen by the same people. It doesn't really matter that you have a change of guard. Right. Maria, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. Maria 
Demetris is the deputy director of Bruegel, and we greatly thank her in Brussels uh, today. With Ben Ritchie and with the news flow, the headlines really starting to change here, John. What we're finding out, and I think we knew it already, making trade deals is really difficult. We're talking about the United Kingdom and the EU on a timeline of, what, 12 months to try and come up with a comprehensive free trade agreement, maybe, if that's what the Prime Minister wants. Talk to us about the difficulty, not with the UK and the EU, the one that's moving markets right now, the epicenter of things at the moment, China and the United States. A lot of people think risk has diminished going into next year. Do you feel the same way? Well, I think yes is the answer, but I think we need to see this deal agreed uh, in some form. I think, as I said earlier, I think the details are less relevant than the deal itself. Um, uh, and can we see that perhaps by the end of the year, perhaps early in the start of next year? Hopefully we can do. And I think that set puts us in a reasonable place uh, going forward. We started this year worried about the effectiveness of monetary policy. We end up feeling very differently about that. It's interesting because we haven't seen a real pickup in the economic data worldwide in Europe or in Asia for that matter. I think we're defining the effectiveness of monetary policy by what markets do. And sure, there is a channel into the real economy from financial markets. That's clear. But I just wonder when the global economy is going to start picking up and what kind of recovery we have ultimately. Is it U-shaped? Is it L-shaped? What are you looking for in the fundamentals, the data in the well, coming months? Well, I think at the moment we've started to see some signs of improvement in, in, in European manufacturing data. So we've seen stabilization of PMIs, stabilization in industrial production. We haven't yet seen an inflection upwards, but, we, but we've seen some stabilization in those rates. Um, and I guess the US economy has continued to grow and develop in a sort of similar way to that which it has done for much of the last five or six years. It's maybe got a little bit slower around the margins, but then we had that very strong jobs print the, the last week. So again, it's in that band of be right. doing okay. Uh, China, I think, again, the, some of the domestic consumption stats there continue to be weak, and we haven't really seen uh, a significant pickup. Uh, but I think a stabilization around uh, the, the trade war, I think, gives the capacity okay. for European manufacturing to pick up. But in the last Q4, we've seen lower for longer established and fixed income. Everybody's moving out. And also, we're waiting on international to come in, including an EM market that really didn't happen in the fourth quarter. What are the signs you look for every day to link together lower for longer with finally EM coming up? What, what, is, what is the sign I want to see out to know that's clicked in? Well, I think it's really looking to China. I think that's the key. And I think if we just can, gross GDP of China, I think, I think, I think it's looking turn. at the PMI and the manufacturing okay. data there. I think that's right. probably going to be the key lead that starts to drive a lot of a lot of the other global economies. That the ones that have been struggling over the last uh, sort of 12, 18 months as a result, primarily of trade, perhaps some other issues in there as well. But that that that, to my mind, is the, is going to be the key sentimental driver for. European what do you make of the big debate currently going into next year, the rest of the world versus, say, the United States? Overwhelmingly, we've got used to a consensus forming of the 2020 outlooks on the other side of the Atlantic, sitting in New York on Wall Street, that it's by the rest of the world in 2020. That's the story to get behind. Is it? Well, I think it's been that story pretty much every year for about the last 10 years, and that's generally been wrong, right? <laughs> so I think, I think as we look at it from here, I think there's reasonable reasons to be more enthused about European equities, particularly going into 2020. I think we've, we've had a tough time uh, in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of the manufacturing side of things. I'm pretty sure that's going to turn as we move through into next year. We've seen an incredibly negative investor sentiment towards that market. I mean, we've can, had a- Can you buy the European banks? I don't mean to interrupt, but this is so important. Can you buy European banks at 0.23 and 0.35? 
book value. Well, you, well, you can do, Tom. I'm not sure they're necessarily the ones you're going to make loads of money on over the next five to ten years, but I think there's enough attractive businesses within a European context. And it's not just about valuation multiples. I think it's about the earnings performance of these businesses. If we're in an environment where yeah. actually we can see a better earnings environment, that can deliver much better returns perhaps than that we could see from the, from the US. And that's what I think we're interested in next year. A place to say that Ben Ritchie of Aberdeen Standard Investments will be sticking with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.